0: Go ahead and take the speed up your number one now, runway two land green dot. Welcome nice Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Hal Bryan, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. Over at the other end of the table, it is Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. And, Tom, we are joined remotely through the magic of the Internet uh, by uh, someone whose name is certainly very well-known uh, to EAA members and certainly readers of uh, Sport Aviation magazine. Uh, but he's, uh, he's somebody you've read his words, but maybe you've never really heard his voice or heard his story. Uh, so we're pretty excited to welcome uh, regular columnist and and frequent feature contributor to all of our publications, Bud Davison. Bud, welcome to The Green Dot.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I, re- I, re- I respect your taste.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's good. There's a first uh, for everything. And congratulations on, uh, on being the first to respect my taste. Uh, we're, we're certainly glad to have you, Bud. And, uh, you know, you and I uh, work together uh, pretty tightly on Sport Aviation Magazine, you know, bouncing your columns back and forth and your feature stories and things like that. Uh, but uh, we're excited to, as, as I said, get people uh, to uh, know the person behind the words.
2: Yeah, and Bud, um, you know, as, as a f- obviously frequent reader of sport aviation and all the other publications and several other aviation magazines, you know, it, it, you, you know, I've, I've re- probably read hundreds of your reports about different aircraft. I was like, yeah, who's this uh, Bud Davison who keeps writing all these uh, stories about about aircraft? It's, it's good to finally uh, to meet you over the uh, the Internet here.
1: Well, it's good to meet you guys, too. Hale, I've known you forever, but uh, uh, Tom's glad to meet you.
2: So, Bud, let's
0: uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, how How did you get involved in aviation? Were you one of those? Uh, did you have any aviation in your family? And were you uh, were you a kid out there building plastic models or RC models or free flight stuff like so many of us? RC models. You don't know how old I am, do you? <laughs> hey, they were RC models back in the '30s. So
1: the when uh, how did I get into aviation? Well, I, I don't know how to phrase that exactly. And uh, was there aviation in my family? In a very perverted, uh, weird sort of way. Uh, I took my first ride in an airplane, in the backseat of a BT-13, going backwards down Highway 15, a little bit north <laughs> of uh, Seward, Nebraska. My dad had a uh, uh, quite a large, very unusual, uh, kind of a general store in a small town in Nebraska, Seward, Nebraska. And uh, 1948, when I was six years old, he bought a BT-13 from the military, directly from the military. And they flew it into a field north of town and towed it back to put in front of his store. My dad was not a pilot, had no interest in aviation. And when I got into it, he was really nervous about the whole thing. But anyway, so the, uh, they towed it backwards down the highway on the, with the tail up the back of a pickup truck. And the pilot put me in the back seat and said, "You got to hold the stick back, or the tail will break off." So for that whole, I didn't know the <laughs> stick was I didn't know the stick was, was safety safety back by the uh, seat belt. So for that whole trip, I never could see, couldn't see anything because I couldn't see over the edge of the, of the airplane. So the whole the whole trip back, I'm gritting my teeth holding the stick back. So that was my first introduction to aviation.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, it taught you uh, a thing or two about taxing a tail, rag- tail dragger, right? Keeping the stick back, sticking that tail yeah, down. Yeah, it,
1: it worked well. All you, The only thing missing in my normal day is the pickup truck under the tail.
2: Do <laughs> you know, uh, how long was that BT-13 in front of the store? Uh, do, do you know what happened to it? Uh, f- uh, three or four years, uh,
1: maybe a little bit more. Uh, then they flew it back out. Oh, wow. So, wow. Still airworthy. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, most kids had a jungle gym or something like that to play on, and I had a BT-13.
0: That sounds a lot cooler to me than your typical jungle gym.
1: And and by the way, probably the... The one thing that affected me most about the BT-13 is nothing smells like a military airplane.
2: No, it doesn't. Right. And,
1: and, and an original one that came right out of the military, it's got a smell. And, and as we're talking, I can smell
0: it right now. Uh, same here. There's that leather and canvas and
2: oil and
0: yeah. bakelite, light, and hydraulic fluid yeah. and, and, yeah. and uh,
1: uh, old seat belts uh, have this kind of a waxy smell to them, kind of like an old buff tent.
2: Yep and,
1: yep. and and uh, yeah, and yeah. And It's if you could make that smell and put it in a spray can, you can make it. You can make a Tripacer seem really romantic and, and warlike. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, in addition to all the chemical smells. There's a lot of sharp edges on a BT13. I don't think I, they'd uh, they'd let a kid bounce around on something like that today.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm essentially a farm kid. Uh, the, our, <laughs> our 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 property was on the edge of t- very edge of town, a very small town, and everybody. You know, basically, I'm a, I'm a product of the uh, cornfields of Nebraska, and that's another way of saying that I've got an awful lot of scars <laughs> from uh, from from being a kid.
2: Yeah, nothing wrong with that.
0: That's great. So, what was next after? So, you're playing on the BT13, uh, and I'm just I'm picturing you riding backward down the down the freeway. That's that's fantastic. What? But, uh, but what was uh, what was next from there? Models. <laughs> you're gonna love
1: this. Another another different airplane in front of my dad's store. <laughs> uh, my dad's uh, business was, uh, well, first of all, he started it in 1934 in the middle of the drought and the Dust Bowl days in uh, in Nebraska and the uh, the Depression. And a lot of his business was built around trading for stuff. And so this his store was quite long. I'm going to guess his store was uh, two-thirds of a block long. <laughs> and uh, And a good portion of it was where he stored... Stuff he took in on trade and then resold, and he traded for everything. And uh, he took in a wind damaged J2 Cub, not a J3, a J2 uh, that had been wind damaged, blown into a windbreak, and took it in on trade on a mattress. Oh so, gosh. so that sat out. So that sat out in front of the store. And by this time, I was oh, probably 13, 14, and uh, so I took that airplane apart, right down to the last nut and bolt, put it back together, and an enormous amount of what I know about uh, airplanes, and I knew really early, was just from taking that old beat-up airplane apart. So that that was the second
2: second step in my aviation <laughs> career. Gee, wow! I don't think uh, I don't think I could go down to Mattress Plus these days and uh, bring in yeah. a a wrecked aircraft and yeah. say uh, here. Give me a posture-pedic. Although,
0: I was going to say I'd, I'd raid our guest bedroom and see if I could make the switch the other way. Yeah. I'll drag a mattress around. No say, hey, anybody got an anybody airplane? Got
2: an airplane? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: And well, the car I drove for, for a few years was a old beat up forty nine uh, Studebaker that he took in on uh, trade on a TV set. So that that kind of trading had a lot to do with what we did, you know, in those days.
2: So, Bud, uh, when did you actually, uh, you know, uh, obviously you, were, you, were, you, you had an exposure uh, that a lot of us didn't have to air, uh, airplanes real up close when you were a kid. When did you actually start flying? Uh, when I was uh, 15,
1: I uh, talked my folks into, uh, uh, well, actually, my dad went in for some fairly serious surgery and was in the hospital for a while. And I talked my mother into signing the permit slip for me to start taking flying lessons. Now, the closest airport was uh, 25 miles away. And uh, so I did uh, three hours in uh, York, Nebraska, uh, an hour in a Cub, an hour in a, a Tripacer. And what was the third hour in? I guess two hours in the Cub. And then I went and learned and uh, started learning in Lincoln, which was uh, 25 miles away. And I hitchhiked, I rode Cushman Eagle. I uh, did whatever it took, you know, to get to it and uh, uh, finished my private by the time I uh, got out of high school.
2: Wow.
0: Oh, that's great. Now, did that J2 that you took apart and put back together, did that fly?
1: No, it's, I don't even know what happened to that. I know that uh, somebody decided they'd take it and do something with it, but it uh, it went somewhere. I don't actually know. Hmm. There wasn't much left of it, I'll tell you that.
0: So it, what would you have been doing your flight training in at that point?
1: Uh, Tripacer, brand new one. You know where the where the uh there's a definite smell to military airplanes there's also a definite smell to uh, new airplanes and uh, the tripasers were new you know this this was uh 58 59 so oh, wow. uh, so there were still new airplanes
0: yeah oh, that's great and then after uh after high school where'd uh, where'd you go from there
1: went to the university of oklahoma as a uh in, in aerospace engineering uh, and it's kind of interesting because uh, when my folks died and we cleaned out the house, I found that my mother had uh, saved everything any of his kids had anything to do with, uh, including all of the uh, my high school notebooks. And uh, around the edges of the pages in, in in the notebooks were lots and lots and lots of crude little drawings of pitch specials. <laughs> and and bear in mind this is in the 50s so uh at that point in time there'd only been three pit specials built and uh then there was that accident in colorado that shut down air shows for quite a while and uh but one of the model companies i think it was berkeley had a u-controlled uh model of the of the pit special and i bet i'll bet i built and crashed 50 of those things while I was growing up. Oh wow. So, uh, so I was in, into aviation really seriously. And uh, when I went to college, uh, I wanted to go to a school that had a really an outstanding flight department, as well as an engineering department. And what I had totally forgotten until we found all this stuff when my, when, uh, were cleaned out the folks house, was my mother had saved all the acceptance letters from colleges I had applied to. And bear in mind that I was a lousy student, I mean, I invented lousy study habits in high school because <laughs> I was busy building hot rods and learning how to fly and, and hunting and shooting and that kind of stuff, doing all the stuff a farm kid does. And uh, uh, But I, I was and still am a born test taker. Have no idea why. I can sit down and take a test on practically anything and do reasonably well whether I know anything about the subject or not. And uh, in those days, to get into a college, if you did well on the SATs and ACTs, you're in, and I had acceptance letters from uh, Purdue, Rice, Stanford, um, shoot, something else. And I picked the University of Oklahoma. Anyone know why? Because it was the only one of those colleges that didn't have a dress code. <laughs> 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 dress code, that's perfect. <laughs> I was not,
0: not going to go to class in a white shirt. <laughs> That's, that, that makes sense, knowing you as I do.
2: So, Bud, what did, you, um, what did you move on to after college? So you went to school for aeronautical engineering. Uh, did you start working in, in, in the aerospace industry straight off or, or what?
1: No. What actually happened was uh, uh, I got my ratings in, uh, while I was in college and then went to work for the, for the, for the uh, University of Oklahoma while I was in graduate school. And flew about 1500 hours of dual given there, and uh, starting out first in champs. And, matter of fact, uh, sometime back I was doing an article for the EAA on, on an L2, and uh, the guy who uh, uh, was restoring it was also restoring a 7EC champ, and he sent me some pictures of it. And uh, one of the interior shots of the uh, panel had a brass plaque in the right corner. It says, universe, it says uh, property of the University of Oklahoma. I went back to my logbooks, and it turned out that I had about 25 hours in that exact airplane. Wow. Wow! Uh, yeah, while I was working on my ratings. And it wasn't until I did that, went back through that logbook, that I uh, found out or reminded myself, because I totally did not know this, that I had taken my uh, check rights for my CFI and my commercial ticket in 7 C's. Wow. Can, you imag- can you imagine that? T- can you imagine that today?
2: You know, I was just thinking that as you were saying that. That that you know, I can't imagine a university flight department flying flying champs. But you know, yeah. given given like you know, nowadays the simplest airplane you'll see in the fleet is a G one thousand one seventy two.
1: <laughs> well, they had they had they had about uh, about a dozen of them, and then uh, the first year that I was flying for the school, I was I was flying in, in champs. And then we converted to some of the very first Cherokees, and uh, uh, so so it, it it was an interesting period of time as things were changing because that was in I went to school in the 60, and uh, graduated '65, then got, went into graduate school and came out of graduate school in '68. So a lot of stuff was changing. You know, if you if you think about it, that's also when the uh, Satabria was uh, was licensed. And yeah. like when, I came, when I came out of school and I was, was going back East and, and uh, uh, I actually had a regular job, believe it or not, uh, for, uh, just so that you to put things in perspective, uh, here I am at this age and uh, I've had W-2 regular income for exactly two years of my entire life. <laughs> and, that, and, and that was when I, when I first came out of school, went to work for uh, DuPont as a uh, uh, rivet specialist, among other things. And which sounds—I know more about rivets than anybody has any need to know—but uh, uh, on the way out, out to this, this was in New Jersey where I was going, and there was an aerobatic school uh, in New Jersey. So, so while I was going to uh, meet my fiance and uh, at the apartment that we were going to live in, the uh, dog legged 50 miles out of the way to go enroll in a aerobatic school in uh, Sussex, New Jersey, and that's where I first started doing. Aerobatics And to give you some idea how crude things were at the time, uh, the school was being run by a retired Air Force bird colonel, and we had seven seven Cetabrias, brand new, uh, a BT-15, not a 13, and a uh, Bravo model T-34, and I came in for my fifth lesson, and the the boss points at a guy over there in the corner and says hey take him out teach him how to do aileron rolls so there i am a guy with four hours of dual (laughs) given and not now i'm an aerobatic instructor you know and and it just just went from there
0: that's that's fantastic so you know we know you now as somebody with uh with time in an absolutely enviable number of types uh and uh, you know you've got uh, in addition to the writing you do for for us and and for other publications and and all the the hundreds and hundreds if not thousands I think maybe must be thousands of features you've written over the years um, as well as your website airbum dot com dot com but was there a point where you said that that was a goal did you did you at any point say you know what I I really want to be Somebody who's who's flown every single thing they can get their hands on was that there from the beginning?
1: Well, it's kind of funny how uh, uh all that came about. The writing actually came first. uh While I was in college, uh, I decided—don't ask me why, because uh, I, I can't say—well, I wanted to do it because of such and such. Um, but I decided I wanted to try writing for magazines, and I uh, uh, actually wrote an article for. Uh, uh, private pilot, I think it was, on a prototype uh, airplane that Aero Commander had built and was flying. The, the airport the university owned, Westheimer Field in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, was an ex-Navy base that was given to them. And Aero Commander did all their prototype uh, building and test flying on that field. So I was daily watching prototype uh, Aero Commanders. And I shot a bunch of pictures and wrote the article and sent it to the magazine. And the magazine said they couldn't, didn't dare run it or they'd lose advertising from uh, Aero Commander. Uh, then I, then I uh, graduated and uh, uh, I don't know if I've ever told you these stories or not, because it, but it, the, the way I got into magazine writing was you couldn't duplicate it in a trillion years, a trillion years. Uh, as I explained to people that getting into magazine writing for magazines on a regular basis is a lot like trying to become a musician you wind, you, you start out working in bars which by the way is also how I made my living at the time uh, as a guitar player but uh, the you spent you would work like crazy to get a job and, and so on and so on I didn't go through any of that one of the gee, the uh, sales calls I was doing for for duPont on the uh, on the on the rivets was at a uh, in a carriage house in one what used to be a gigantic uh, opulent uh, mansion affair in uh, south part of new york state and i opened the door and because i was chasing a bingo cards you know where they would it, they would send addresses and you'd go try to sell them stuff and uh, so i opened the door and uh, right in front of me was a 65 uh, uh, Corvair Monza with a Buick V8 in the back seat. There was a Jodel D9 semi finished up on the wall. <laughs> and, they, and they were doing wings for, for Can Am cars, which is why they wanted these rivets. And got, the guy introduced himself, uh, and it was Robert Cumberford. Now, I immediately knew who Robert Cumberford was because he did some writing for Air Progress Magazine. And he was a really a well known uh, uh, automotive writer. And uh, uh, matter of fact, until the, the, the premier car magazine, Automobile, out of Europe, uh, went under, he, he was the design editor. But anyway, so we talked about magazines and how he got into magazines. And uh, he said, well, I know the editor of uh, Air Progress Magazine. You know, his office is in New York City, where Air Progress comes out of at this point. So, so he, he called, called him, uh, Don Taiponda was his name. I gave me a, got me a, 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 so I set up a luncheon date the next day. I walked out of that luncheon date. Now, he didn't even know if I could type, didn't even know if I could fly, didn't know anything about me, zero, zero. I walked out of that meeting uh, with an assignment to do a monthly column that ran for 46 years in three different magazines. So it's just, I just, I, I didn't pay any dues to get into the business. And Don was a pretty serious modeler, and I was a pretty serious uh, uh, U, you know, U-control stunt guy. And uh, we were at Sussex Airport. I remember this plane day and we were on a, on a swift landed. And uh, I said, God, I've always wondered how those things fly. And he said, well, write me a pilot report. And that was the first of nearly 500 pilot reports. And And, and because of the traveling I was doing selling rivets, uh, I was in Canada, and I ran across an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous uh, Traveler D4D. And uh, I told Don, type on the way, I'll do a story on this. And he said, well, like, I don't have the budget to send a photographer to so say, you're going to have to shoot the shoot the photos. Now, my dad was a fairly serious amateur photographer, and we had a, a dark darkroom uh, in, in the house. And by the time I was 12 or 13, I was, you know, very good at, at doing darkroom stuff uh so my first roll of color uh was also my first cover <laughs>
0: Wow! <laughs> wow. Of, of,
1: of, of over uh, that was the first of uh, uh uh over 300 covers so it's like i said i paid zero dues i was in the right place doing the right thing at the right time
0: and period what year was would have been your first column for air progress
1: First column uh, came out in June of 1969. Okay. Wow. And that first column was was initially called the Instructor Side, and uh, was talking about about you know learning to fly and instructing and everything. That lasted for about a about a year. Then we changed the name to Grassroots, and that's what it did up until uh, uh, a couple of years ago when it was taken out of. It was the back page column for uh, Air Progress for uh, Private Pilot, and then plane a pilot and ran a plane and plane a pilot until about uh, two years ago
2: Wow yeah it, it you know it's there's a lot of stories like that and in, in especially in a small industry like aviation where it's you know right place right time um, you know I uh, I think both Hal and I would probably say we got very lucky to be uh, to be where we are right now
0: absolutely uh, and it's it is a matter of it's a matter of showing up it's a matter of Of, uh, you know, making friends and expressing an interest and and connecting with people and things like that, which is uh, it's there's so much more chaos in our lives today. But but at least arguably, it's a lot easier to make remote connections now than it, you know, than it certainly was 30, 40 years ago.
1: Yeah, I try. I try to explain to, to, uh, uh, you know, the students that uh, that I fly with, uh, for the most part, they stay here in our B&B. And uh, once in a while, I get somebody that's young, and I've got one now that's 22 years old. And I point out that because uh, as we're talking, I'm sitting here with uh, uh, two 22-inch monitors, uh, with with you know high-end. I, c- I can I can do stuff, and uh, as you can do the same thing where you're sitting right now with your computers. We can do anything that an ad agency ever thought about doing. We can do our own color separations. We can do stuff that you wouldn't think of, and. Uh, uh, I point out to him that when i first started doing this stuff i was using a royal a royal portable typewriter <laughs> and you would type it with uh, onion skin carbon you know so it was making a, a carbon copy if you if you made a mistake you had to go back and retype the entire damn page and it and it uh, uh it is so easy today you know to, to do it with the the computers and the and the uh, however there's one kind of narrow uh, kind of uh uh, not necessarily upsetting, but uh, sort, of, sort of upsetting thing that happens to me regularly anymore. And that's when I get ready to do an article on, a, on a, uh, an airplane, especially an antique. I'll Google it. And I find myself using articles that I wrote on that airplane when it was brand new 50 years ago. <laughs> so I'm using my own stuff as source documents.
0: Hey if, hey, if you've got a you got a crib from somebody, why not to yourself, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, but I mean, I mean, it's just, it's just uh, uh, really shows how long you've been in this business, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, it it sure does. I uh, I was telling Tom before we started. I know I, I mentioned this to you once some years ago, Bud. But uh, in May of 1988, in Air Progress, uh, you wrote a, a, a feature about the uh, Belanca Cruise Air, and that was uh that was a much beloved and still is. Uh, Airplane for me since I was about 12 years old and first saw one at a fly in at our home airstrip. And it's so hard to wrap your head around now. But at that point, there were really no books on the airplane. Uh, There was certainly there was no Internet. There was no there was no place really to go I was sort of writing letters or, you know, maybe finding, you know, finding someone who owned one. There wasn't a way to sit there and, and indulge that interest and say, okay, how do I learn more about this? And then I, I found that copy of that magazine, and then it was reprinted a little bit later in like a recap of of uh, pilot reports that Air Progress did. And I swear I had that thing memorized. And I remember thinking at the time, I was uh, I was 20 years old at that point, and and thinking, boy, you know, who's this Bud Davison guy? And, uh, you know, it's pretty cool that he gets to fly this thing. Maybe Maybe I want to be him when I grow up
1: god i hope you're not it's, 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 <laughs> well i haven't even it come looks a lot to different it. it looks a lot different from the inside <laughs> about Dave so, than it does the outside
0: i was gonna say i haven't even started thinking about growing up yet and you know here we are uh, 35 years later so i'm not
1: i'm it's not a, it's not a consideration if we if we were if we had any possibility growing up you, we would not be talking right now right <laughs> about what we're talking about
0: yeah we'd be selling insurance like good respectable uh, respectable folk or something
1: or, or uh, probably not although you know there's a great a uh, great country song out right now and the main line is what would I be doing if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now oh wow and and that's a really good question you know if if, if we hadn't taken the paths that we have taken and met the people that we have met and And all of which have taken us into different parts of aviation. And uh, what would we be doing if we weren't doing it professionally? And the truth is, we'd still be doing it. That's all there is to it. We would still be
0: doing it. Yeah, I've always said that, uh, uh, you know, if you really want to figure out what you want to do in your life is, number one, uh, pay attention and ask yourself, what are the things that nobody can stop you from doing? What are the things that you're going to do? No matter what, whatever your day job is, whatever this is, whatever that is, there's those things out there, just, just like you said, that you always find your way back to. And and certainly for, uh, for everybody on this episode right now, aviation is square among them.
1: Well, I I, I will say in all honesty that uh, about 1970 or 71, uh, I decided I was going to become a, uh, a if not the, uh, uh, Warbird photographer and uh i had a pretty fair amount of of photography background because of my dad and uh from doing the magazine stuff and uh uh, and then this again this is another one of those things where serendipitous things kind of kind of wrap around each other to create a, a result and uh so i decided i was going to go down to Harningen to one of the caf shows and try to shoot a bunch of uh warbirds but i didn't have a camera ship So I started calling around, asking for people that would have uh, airplanes that might be down there, et cetera, et cetera. And somebody directed me to uh, George N. Horning up in Connecticut. He had an A-model T-28. And he said, when I called him and said what I wanted to do, now I did not know him, he did not know me. Uh, Didn't have much of a profile at that point in time. And uh, uh, he said, well, I don't know. I wasn't planning on going down, but hell, if it'll help you, I'll I'll do it. So he flew a T-28 from Connecticut to Harlingen, Texas, <laughs> wow. for a guy he'd never heard, didn't know anything about, to fly camera ship for me, so he did. And uh, uh, one of the one of the founders of Warbirds back, at the, sort of at the beginning, was Max Hoffman from uh, South Dakota, and uh, he had e model uh, E-model P40, and he was down there, and uh, so we were up shooting pictures we had three p40s stacked up in an echelon and uh he was one of them and uh when, when we were done shooting the three i sent everybody else away and we were uh i was shooting just him and we were doing formation loops and so i get get pictures of a p40 going vertical you know that type of thing then when we were all done and we were headed back towards the airport uh i asked uh, uh And now at this point in time, Orney had no idea whether I could fly or if I was a pilot. I was just the guy with two Nikons hanging on his neck. And uh, so I said, can I fly the airplane? He said, "Uh, yeah, go ahead. So uh, I came up on the radio and I told uh, uh, Max, I said, okay, photographer's got the airplane. And I took the stick and I racked the stick left, right, real quick to rock the wings real hard. So Max knew what was coming. So I pulled it up vertical, rolled over my back, doing a leg roll to come in behind him. Max saw it coming, so he knew exactly what I was doing. So he started to pull off. Pretty soon, we had this unbelievable dogfight going on. <laughs> and and bear in mind, George had no idea that I flew or not. So, but part part way through this, he drops his even in the back seat, he drops his seat all the way down so I can see over his head. And uh, and Max Max could outrun me. But he didn't dare turn with me because I could eat him alive in turns and going over the top and all that kind of stuff. So he went back to the uh, to the field. and we shot another airplane. And by the time I got back, I had a different position in the Warbird community. <laughs> I guess so. You know, and, and those are the kind of things you just don't forget. You just don't forget. And at one point, uh, and I'd done a series of uh, uh, Warbird posters and antique posters for one of my clients, Butler Aviation. And uh, so just for the hell of it, I talked to the to the President of Butler and I says, should we see about doing a photo show with, with uh, you know, some of these pictures that I've done for you guys?" He says, yeah, do what you want to do?" So I called uh, uh, the Smithsonian. I'm just right out right cold. called the Smithsonian and uh, the curator uh, he was busy and I was talking to his, his uh, secretary and I says, uh, well I, can I talk to him And he says, Okay, let me see. So he called. So she called him. He comes on the phone, and the first my first words with him were him saying, "How's the world's best air-to-air photographer doing today?" <laughs> and you could have knocked me off my chair. So that led that led to a one-man photo show in the Smithsonian that ran for eight years and covered the entire back wall of the Pioneer Flight Gallery, about a hundred-foot wall, and uh, and and I it's just. I've had a very magical life in stepping into stuff. Uh, uh, here's another classic example. I, I'm sorry to get on a roll like this, but but to show you how you just I stumbled into stuff. Um, I was looking for a, a T6. This was when, a matter of fact, this was when I was still had a job. So this was when I was uh, 20, 26 or seven. and uh, was down at Homestead, Florida, and, uh, uh, and I heard there was a T6 there for sale. There was a Youngmeister sitting there and uh, walked around it. I knew what the airplane was, never actually had seen one. And uh, the uh, guy who was selling them there, Bill Thomas, uh, that well, that, that Bill Thomas, uh, I asked him, can I sit in it? He says, yeah, go ahead, probably sit in it. So while I'm sitting in the airplane, he's asking me what I'm doing. At that point in time, I was uh, uh, instructing in is and aerobatics. And uh, so we talked for a little bit and he said, you want to fly the airplane? I says, what? He said, yeah, you want to fly the Youngmeister? and I couldn't get yes out of my mouth fast enough. And uh, so just like that, I'm turned loose on a youngmeister. No, he didn't know me, I didn't know him, i didn't never seen the airplane before, bam, I'm in a youngmeister flying it. And that kind of thing just happened over and over and over throughout my life. And it and it's, has nothing to do with being creative or having a position or anything else, it's just in the right place at the right time with the right people.
2: Absolutely, I, I think I think your story, uh, and I already said before, I think it's similar to, to Hal and mine. You know, when I was getting started in my career, I kind of I, I dismissed the idea that I'd ever be doing what I'm doing now. It's like, oh man, the line's got to be around the block for that. And, well, either somehow I was at the front of the line or the line wasn't very long (laughs) because here I am. But um, I actually had had a question for for both you, Bud, and also for Hal. Um, Over the years, how have you seen the... Especially, I guess let's just focus on the aviation magazine industry. How has that industry changed? How is the typical, and I know that it's, you know, obviously there's there's some macro forces there, right? The the market's contracted. There are fewer magazines these days than there used to be. But also maybe more content and, and what people want to read, that kind of thing?
1: Who's going to answer this first, Hal or me? You first, bud. Um, well, there's been a tremendous change uh, uh, huge change and it it, it kind of goes in cycles. sometimes it seems like but you go back to the uh to the air progress days in the uh 80s and uh, 90s and um I just, I just had a you know when i was working with them i just i knew that if i ran across any kind of an oddball airplane no matter what it was that if i flew it and shot photography that we'd have a story on it because there there was a a lot of interest in Uh, I was about to, by the way, I'm learning something from working with this 22-year-old student right now, and that I have to watch what references I use because it may predate predate him by so far that it doesn't mean anything to him. (laughs) And I was about to say that, uh, uh, that there's kind of a Walter Mitty aspect to pilot reports. People want to know what it would be like for them to fly that particular airplane and uh i don't see any of that anymore first of all there's no there's no uh magazine that will print that kind of stuff you know as a matter of fact even even in in sport aviation it used to be when we uh would stage the photography out of oshkosh uh i would fly the airplane when they were doing the air to air so i'd do a pilot report on the airplane at the same time and that kind of stuff is is on my website i've got about 144 pilot reports, and the forensics, the forensics of the site say very clearly that's by far the most popular part of the, of the, uh, site. And, uh, very few magazines do that kind of thing anymore. And there's got to be a reason why they don't do it. And that's because they have determined that their readership, uh, wants, uh, more, more common, more relatable stuff, I guess. I don't know. But, uh. That's that's what I see. And of course, when you say that, that the the industry has retracted, has as, uh, contracted, you're you're given to understatement. <laughs> you know, there's there's uh, to, to be a hard copy magazine today is very difficult, very difficult if you're going to try and make it on the newsstand, as right. opposed to being as opposed to being a sponsored uh, uh, publication. Your turn, Al.
0: Well, we're we're very lucky in that regard. Certainly, being a you know being a membership journal as opposed to as you said, competing for uh, dwindling space among dwindling newsstands uh, out there. It's a very different position. It's uh, it's it's humbling, and it's something that we don't take lightly, and and we certainly don't take for granted uh, the fact that we're a you know we're a, a good solid print magazine whose uh, whose readership is steadily growing. And uh, there, there's not many publications, especially you know more niche publications, that can say that. And that's something, as I said, we we uh, we take that we take that uh, privilege. Uh, very seriously and and with a lot of humility. It's interesting you mentioned the pilot report things because it you know the pendulum that is one area that I think does sort of swing back and forth based on what people are interested in and in our publications. Uh, so we've just started uh, with a, a a new columnist, uh, so a, a guy named Chris Caldwell, um, has been. Uh, uh, doing a lot of blogging over the years and he's doing a lot of, uh, pilot reports as well. So he's starting to take some of his experience and write that stuff for us. And that's, uh, that's the plane impressions column. And this is a guy who, uh, who flies F 35s during the week and everything GA and antique and classic can get his hands on, on the weekends. So he's having a ton of fun with that. And then we also started doing in uh, the warbirds magazine. Um, I put together, uh, Unfortunately, uh, I'm, I, I don't get to go fly everything. I get to, I get to le- let the experts tell you how to do it. But we've got a column called Form Five and Warbirds that also recently started. That gives you more of that. Uh, we, you know, it's it's a it's a pretend virtual checkout. So it's a little bit deeper than what you might get out of a typical feature, which is going to blend the flying characteristics in with history and the restoration story and all that. This is just devoted to let's get in, talk through the procedures, what's unique about flying this airplane, talk through the numbers and things like that. So. Um, and that's something that I've always been drawn to, and I think that's—I think we were pretty excited to bring those elements uh, elements in. Um, but you know, speaking of your your collection of pilot reports, Bud. Um, by
1: by the way, I've got about 150 up, and I've got probably another 200 in the back that I'm trying to get around to producing.
0: I was going to say I, I know that there's there's a lot more than what's out there, and and there's a lot out there, uh, but maybe Tom and I might bounce back and forth here. Just let's look for some real quick answers on. Uh, um, uh, I'll ask I'll ask the hard and rude one first. Thinking about all those pilot reports, do you have a f- a favorite that you've flown?
1: Oh yeah, hands down. There's no no comparison. There's a the Bearcat is uh, FAF Bearcat is hands down. You, you can find anybody who's flown one. And they'll all say the same thing that's hands down the best airplane i've ever flown uh not only just because of the raw performance but the uh, uh the finesse of the of the of the design itself and the the way the cockpit is laid out it's, it's real obvious that it's uh it benefited from uh uh grumman's building up to that point because it, it is the ultimate uh, from my point of view and from airplanes that i've flown it's the ultimate propeller driven airplane and it's uh uh it's you know, unbelievable performance, but it's also uh, you really should not be able to log tailwheel time in it. It is such an easy tailwheel airplane to fly, even though it's got uh, 2,000 horsepower. <laughs> and uh, uh, but I mean it's, it's I, I can't say enough good about it. Absolutely cannot.
2: Wow. Yeah. That that's that had to have been very unique. Matter of fact,
1: incidentally, Hal, somewhere in the background of uh, of uh, the Warbirds magazine there is a pilot report i did on a beric on a barricade i think floating around there somewhere waiting to be run i don't think it's been run yet i did the same thing i did the same thing on the uh, uh p38 you know because i when i flew the p38 i had a total of eight hours of all the engine time four hours four hours wow. in an apache and four hours in an apache and four hours getting, getting a type rating b25 yeah. so that's a way to do it. Th-
2: that, that is an enviable uh, progression there. <laughs>
1: yeah, no kidding. It, it, there's, there's no way I can explain how incredibly scared I was when I first flew <laughs> it.
2: <laughs> okay, so I was thinking of uh, which superlative I would use here, and I, I've i settled on weirdest. What's the weirdest airplane that you've uh, or aircraft that you've flown?
1: Well, probably, and I may think of probably the, the, the one that jumps out as being the most unusual. Uh, would be a, a Fiesler Storch. Oh, yeah. It had, had uh, uh, everything about the airplane is, is uh, comically big. I mean, the rudder pedals were uh, the, the size of, uh, of uh, clown shoes.
2: They were <laughs> huge,
1: huge rudder pedals. And uh, uh, the flap handle was, was you know, the, it looked like you were trying, you're gonna be opening a, a gigantic manhole cover or something. <laughs> and uh, uh you know but i mean it was just a a flying fool and it just you know just a very very different airplane i've flown a few airplanes that i remember uh jack Cox sent me out to lake havasu to fly an amphib the, the name of which i will not give you and when i got back i called jack i said jack do you really hate me that much that you would want me to get, ki- <laughs> want me to get killed flying something like that Never again.
0: (laughs) You know, it's really funny, bud, because I did a a story on uh, a gentleman who's got one of the uh, three-quarter scale, the Slepchev Stork uh, replicas. And I did a bit of a sidebar on the original. And uh, I actually quoted uh, one of your old pilot reports on flying the original, original Feaster. So that was very, very fresh in my mind and and funnily enough my next question was is there a type you'd never uh you'd never fly again and it sounds like you just answered that is it?
1: I, I just, yeah there there you go now i will say that i had a the the uh the grobe Speedwing from germany which was a uh, uh looks for all intents and purposes looks like a, a long easy uh, but it was certified in germany and uh when i got that off the ground i I, it was really kind of weird because I couldn't tell exactly what the controls were doing. And uh, uh, nothing about it. I just had a terrible, normally when I fly an airplane, I, 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 there's enough similarity to other airplanes or you can feel it in your butt what it's doing. And this one, I was kind of kind of lost trying to figure out how to make this airplane do what I wanted to do. And a matter of fact, to the point, that I was a little bit worried about trying to land the airplane. And I was looking around, looking around. And finally, I looked, happened to look overhead. And there was about a half-inch piece of yarn, Scotch taped up there that was left over <laughs> from 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 a uh, uh, piece of yarn that was probably four or five inches long. I started looking at that and then realized what was going on was the airplane had immense, I mean immense adverse yaw. You put any air on it it and it slid sideways. If you didn't have a if you didn't have almost full rudder in it. So once I figured that out, I could I could fly it. But boy, that was one of the weirdest feelings not knowing what the uh, uh you know what I was what I was doing, thinking that I knew what I was doing. Obviously didn't.
0: So with that in mind, um do you have a type out there that you've never had the chance to fly and uh that's that's on your bucket list? Something let let's restrict it to stuff that that exists. Because if you ask me that question, I'd say, well there's the Curtis Condor and a you know and a B-36 and and uh, an hp-42 and stuff but what what would yours be that that's out there and flying that you haven't gotten your hands on if there's anything
1: i've really only got two airplanes on my bucket list and i'm I'm never going to get to fly either one of them i'm certain and that would be the the, uh, p-40 and f-86 wow good choices because the the f-86 is kind of like the uh uh bearcat everybody that flies them say they're the sweetest airplane god ever created and uh assuming god worked for north america which he didn't (laughs) uh at least for a number
0: of years (laughs) well not right
1: off the not right off the bat anyway he graduated to a higher level but uh uh, yeah the the saber is something i really like to fly and i've been offered one uh but i've got to get a type rating in a uh, a t-33 and that's never going to happen so it is what it is it's always better not to. I my feeling is nobody should ever ever accomplish all their goals or or get everything they've ever wanted. You always want to have something out there, you know, to strive for.
0: Absolutely. Otherwise, you get complacent and don't know what to do with yourself.
1: I have got I got no idea. I'll take your word for it. Okay, fair enough.
0: I'm just telling you what I've heard. <laughs> so, well, Bud, with that, we are, uh, we're up against the, the clock to wrap up this episode. So thank you so much for taking some time to jo- join us uh, for this episode. Really glad to get it out there and glad to let people get a chance to get to know you a little bit better.
1: Well, it's flat- flattering that anybody would give a damn.
0: Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> you might be surprised, and I, I, in fact, I'm sure you'll be surprised. Uh, so, with uh, with that, many thanks, uh, Bud, and everybody out there listening. And you can always catch uh, Bud every month in his Shop Talk tol- column in Sport Aviation, and and most months, uh, at least one feature in the magazine. Sometimes two, depending on uh, depending on how lazy the rest of us are. If we want to pawn one off on him, so. Uh, so, Bud, thanks again for joining us. And hal, a quick Hal, a quick word. Okay, go for our, it. Our,
1: the email that I the, the you and I went back and forth on yesterday about uh, toxicity of uh, of uh,
0: uh, wood glue. Yes, and the kind of kind of scandalous and exciting things you and I talk about.
1: Yeah, well, I jumped into that, and that's the next. That was not what I was planning on doing for the next uh, shop talk. But I I learned too much out of it not to do something with it. So <laughs> very good. So there well, you are.
0: everybody out there heard it here first. If uh, if you want to know about toxic <laughs> glue, uh, Bud's your man. Look for that in an upcoming issue.
2: Talk to y'all later. Yes, and certainly uh, thank all of you out there for listening uh, and uh, and for uh, sending us the reviews and keeping uh, keeping. Uh, the Green Dot going with, uh, with your, your listenership and, uh, and your kind words. Uh, the Green Dot is, is uh, produced by EAA through Chris Henry, who handles the scheduling and is often our, one of our hosts as well. Today, Scott Giese is running our board. He also runs uh, a lot of our back-end production. And uh, Hal's team, as well as our marketing team, handle the, uh, the publication and distribution of The Green Dot.
0: So thanks for, uh, thanks for that shout-out, Tom, and and I'll reiterate what Tom said. Thanks to everybody for listening, and thanks for the feedback. Uh, we love seeing those reviews on iTunes, uh, the comments at eaa.org, or the comments directly on the blog posts that accompany each episode at inspire.ea.org. And with that, uh, our ongoing thanks again to everybody out there, and we'll look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.